come, uh, we started in 1 Samuel 1 some time ago, and now we're at chapter 26. Tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be looking at two chapters instead of one. Now, I know some of you think that's heresy, <laughs> we're doing that, but that's what we're doing. I want you to see uh, something here that's important. What happens in our lives probably more often than we, than we think, and that's why we need to cover chapters 26 and 27 tonight. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 26. It's very similar to chapter 24, which we covered a few weeks back. Um, but as happened before, we will witness tonight the two sides of David. Two sides of David. There's a David who, for the most part, regardless of circumstances, trusts in the providential leading of God in his life. And then there's the David who lets the circumstances get the best of him, and he lacks trust in the providential guidance of God. Now we ask, how can that be the case? Isn't, we think, isn't David a good Calvinist? Doesn't he know that the Lord is sovereign and governs all of life? Therefore, he should be trusting the Lord's providence at all times. Wouldn't this same David later write in Psalm 139, 16, All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Yes, David's theology was, in, was on target and biblical, but here's the problem. He knew that God was providentially in control intellectually, but that knowledge didn't always transfer over into his life. It didn't always work out in real life that way. You know, sometimes when the going gets tough, we succumb to unbelief, don't we? And doubts in our life, and we're not trusting the Lord's all-wise providence. It happens to all of us. And that's what happened to David. It happens to us many times. We don't want to admit that, maybe, but it happens to us. So there are two sides of David, as there are to all of us. The outline tonight is very simple. Chapter 26 is the David who trusts in the providence of God. Chapter 27 is the David who lacks trust in the providence of God. First of all, chapter 26, the David who trusts in the providence of God. Well, the Ziphites, and I'm not going to read the chapter again. That's why I had Justin read it for me. The Ziphites in verse 1, have we've seen them before. They live in the wilderness in the southern part of Judah and Israel. We know that they are guys who like to rat out David. <laughs> David's hiding down there in the desert, and they already gave David, a, a Saul, David to Saul one time, told Saul where he was in chapter 23. Now in chapter 26, they're doing it again. They tell Saul, hey, we know where David's hiding out. We know you want to kill him. We know where he's at. Come down here to where we are, and we can try to, hopefully you can get him down here. Now in chapter 24, Saul had been in hot pursuit of David as normal, and the Lord had brought David and or brought Saul rather into in his providence again into a cave. Remember this in chapter 24, brought Saul into a cave, and David and his men happened to be hiding in that cave. Out of all the caves in that area, David and his men were hiding in this particular cave, and this is where the Lord brought them. And David had a chance to kill Saul, and his men urged him to do it, but David said, "Nope, I'm not going to put my hand against the Lord's anointed." And David spared the life of Saul. And he was, uh, certainly he would have died, by the way. And after that, Saul thinks to himself, wow, that was something of David to do that. And he was very remorseful, and he felt bad about trying to kill David. He was remorseful, but he was not repentant. He was not repentant. Why do I say that? Because here we are in chapter 26 again, and here, here he is again on the march to try to kill David. He's got his 3,000 choice soldiers with him, and he comes down to this area where David's at, and he's, he's, he's going to try to get him. But this time, David takes the initiative. He's not hiding in a cave. He's not hiding somewhere. He says to himself, I'm going to go find out where Saul is camping. And he takes the initiative to do that. And he goes down to the camp at night. Him and one of his men named Abishai go together to this camp at nighttime. And everybody's sound asleep in, this, in the camp of Saul. 
They're all around in a circle with Saul in the middle of protecting their king, and they're all, but they're not protecting their king because they're all asleep. Why are they asleep? Look at verse 12. It says they're asleep at the end of the verse because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Again, the Lord's providential care over David. We've seen it time and time again. They're out like a light. They're going to get a great night's sleep because the Lord has put them to sleep. And so that's why David and Abishai are able to sneak into the camp. And they do that. The Lord's watching over his future king. And Abishai says he's more than happy to put Saul out of his misery. He says, Just give me my, I'll get my spear and with one stroke I'll pin him to the ground. I'll kill him for you, David. I'll put him to death. But David, being David, says, no, we're not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Look at verse 9. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? Again, he says the same thing he's been saying. Now, to prove that they were there, though, David decides to take some of the things that belong to Saul and bring him back with him. In fact, he takes, his, he takes Saul's best friend, who is what? What's Saul's best friend? His spear, right? How many times have we seen Saul and his spear? Takes his spear and he takes his jug of water, we could say his canteen today. And they, and by the way, this is the third time in as, in as many chapters as we've seen David having a chance to kill his enemy and not doing it. We saw it in chapter 24, he could have killed Saul. He didn't do it in the cave. In chapter 25, he could have killed Nabal, the man who was the fool, right? He could have done that, but... but Abigail stopped him and intervened, and he didn't kill him as well either. In chapter 25, uh, or chapter 26, rather, he can kill Saul again. But he maintains his conviction that this is the Lord's anointed, the king of Israel. God's anointed him to be the king. I'm not going to touch him. I'm going to let God take care of Saul. And so he grabs a spear. He grabs this jug of water. They go to a mountain some distance away. And in Israel, a lot of times in a mountain, you can, you can call down and yell down, and, and there's like an amphitheater effect, and people can hear you. And that's what he does. He uses the mountain for a platform to give a speech. And he gives a speech and he says, hey, Abner. He addresses Abner first. Abner is the commander of Saul's army. He says, you're not doing a very good job of defending your king. You guys are sound asleep over there. Now they're, now they're awake after David's over there yelling. And he says, really, you deserve to die because you're not defending your king. And then he addresses Saul. Now look at verses 18 and 20. I will read these verses. This is important. David says to Saul, why then is my Lord Saul pursuing his servant for what have I done or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Basically, he says to Saul, in effect, why are you constantly hounding me? Am I really worth the trouble and the effort? I mean, he says, getting to the point where I'm going to have to leave Israel. I'm running out of hiding places here. You're driving me out of Israel. Furthermore, you're driving me away from the Lord, is what you're doing, Saul. That's what you're doing. Uh, you're driving me away from the covenant people of Israel. In fact, you're pushing me to worship false gods, because if I leave this country and go to another country... What do they have to worship there but false gods? So he makes his case. He says, and besides that, I don't want to die in a foreign soil away from the presence of the Lord. I don't want that to happen. Why are you pursuing me? Now, could, they, could David worship the Lord in another country? Could he pray to the Lord and seek the Lord? Yes, he could, of course. Daniel did that when he was in Babylon. He could do that. However, if he leaves Israel, he's going to be away from the covenant blessings of God. 
He's going to be no, have no access to the priesthood, no access to the prophets, no access to the sacrificial system of Israel, no access to the way they worship God in Israel. He's not going to have any of that. That's a horrible thought to David. He can't imagine it being away from the Lord and his blessings and his covenant blessings to his people. It's like saying here, what if we said to you, we can't come to church here anymore to worship together as the people of God. That's over with. That's kind of like it was for David. That's how he felt. And so he, he gives his speech to Saul, and Saul again feels remorseful because, again, David has spared the life of Saul. And Saul says, I've sinned. I've played the fool. Uh, and I promise not to harm you anymore, David. I won't do that. But, of course, David is David very, by the way, David's a very shrewd person as you read through the scriptures. Very intelligent, smart. He's very cunning, Saul said at one time. That's true. And Saul does not trust, David does not trust Saul, and so they go their separate ways. But David is content to let this lie in the Lord's hands. Look at verse 23. He says to Saul, the Lord will, will repay each one for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch you out, stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And in verse 24, he says, may the Lord deliver me from all distress. David's hope is in the Lord. It's clear to see that in this chapter. He's hoping in the Lord. He's trusting in God. He's trusting in God with the, circ trusting God with the circumstances. He's trusting the providential uh, guidance of God in his life. He's willing to trust the Lord with Saul and his madness. Look back at verses 9 and 10. Chapter 26. David had said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can stretch out the hand, his hand against the Lord's anointed? David said in verse 10, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. He's going to strike Saul. Or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. He says, Saul's death is going to come about one day. I'm trusting God. I'm going to trust in the providential hand of God. That's what he says in chapter 26. But we go over to chapter 27, and now we see the David who lacks trust in the providence of God. Does this sound like us? The David who lacks trust in the providence of God. Look at verses 1 through 7. This is not a long chapter, so don't panic, okay? Then, then David said to himself, said in his heart, now, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, and he and his men, each with his household, even David, with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. <clears throat> then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on David. It's easy for me to sit back in my study, wherever that is. It's a mobile study. I'm everywhere studying, not in one place. It's easy for me to sit back in my study approximately 3,000 years after this incident took place and criticize David and say, why isn't David trusting the Lord? It's easy for me to do that. So I want you to know at the outset, not only do I understand why David did what he did, there's a good chance I would have done the same thing. Very good chance of it. And by the way, when you see the name David in this chapter, in chapter 27, substitute your name for his, and I'll do the same for mine, because that's how we are. At one time in our lives, we are trusting in the providence of God, trusting the Lord, believing in him. At another time, not so much. 
We're pretty fickle, aren't we? We're very inconsistent people. But I want you to know that David had some very tough issues that he faced. We need to understand that. Let's look at what, what he was up against. Go back to 26, uh, verse 24, and he says, Deliver me from, uh, May the Lord deliver me from all distress. David is in great distress. He knows that he's never going to have peace as long as Saul is hunting him down like a, an animal. He knows he's going to never have peace. He knows he's on the run. He's tired of running. There's nowhere he can find that where he's really safe. He doesn't feel safe. The Ziphites have given him up twice. He's having a hard time keeping hidden. And not only that, he's got to think of his 600 men. Now he's going to take care of them. How am I going to feed these guys and take... We saw that in chapter 25. How am I going to take care of these guys? And furthermore, we're finding something new. Look at verse 3. David lived with Achish at Gathi and his men, each with his household. Now these men have growing families. Not only are there men there, there's women. David talks about his two wives here. We talked about that last week. There are children here. This fugitive business is getting a little old, isn't it? Being on the run. David, at this time, instead of having 600 men, could have had 1,000 to 2,000 people, including families that are with, with, him, with him on the run. Can you imagine trying to keep that crowd hidden? Very difficult situation. Along with that, David himself sounds discouraged, doesn't he? I mean, look, look what he says in 27.1. He says, David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me to do than to escape into the land of the Philistines. He feels like this is the best he can do. I, I've checked all the options out. This is the best option I can see. This is the best I can do. And this is what I'm going to take. This is where I'm going. He sounds like someone who's given up hope, doesn't he? Like he's kind of hopeless at this point. He thinks that the best thing he can do is find security in Philistia, in the land of the Philistines. Imagine that. Finding security in the land of the Philistines. Now that's crazy if you think about it. Well, one thing's for sure, Saul wouldn't come looking for him there, right? So I sympathize with David. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. What would you do in a situation? What would you do with all those people behind you and you're running and you're trying to keep them hidden. He is running out of options. He's not welcome in Israel, at least by the king of Israel. He's not welcome in Israel. And that's the main guy you've you got to be concerned about. But maybe now the Philistines will accept him, now that they both have a common enemy. Saul is the enemy of the Philistines, and Saul is the enemy of David. And maybe David figures, I'll go over there and hook up with them. Maybe we can be mercenary soldiers of sorts. Uh, we, we do have this common enemy. But if you think about this, this doesn't make any sense at all. It makes no sense at all. The Philistines are the constant enemy of Israel. They are a pagan, godless nation. They want nothing more than the extermination of Israel. Uh, David had defeated them in battle. He had fought against them in battle, it says earlier in 1 Samuel. And do you remember the guy he had killed in battle that belonged to the Philistines, their champion, Goliath? David had killed the champion soldier named Goliath, by the way, who was from the city of Gath. And guess where David is, is going again? He's going back to the city of Gath. Now, by the way, this is not the first time he went to Gath in the, in the land of Philistia. He went there in chapter 21. You remember that? David went there in chapter 21. He went there and they seized him and he couldn't figure out what to do. And so he used the great American tactic of uh, pre pretending to be temporarily insane to escape the justice of the Philistines, right? Remember he went nuts for a while? He acted like he was crazy and... And the, and the king says, I don't, don't I have enough of madmen here? Why do I need this guy around? And they kind of ran him out of town. But now he's going back to Gath, of all things. Now, I, I sympathize with David. I truly do. Uh, you know, when we deal with people, when we talk to people, 
about the scriptures and when we counsel with them and the problems that they have, believers included, we need to understand where they're coming from. We need to be understanding of people and their difficulties. Truly, David faced tremendous odds, tremendous difficulties. And we've got to understand that. You know, we, we may have never been where people are in their lives, and we've got to understand we're talking to them. They're coming from a difficult point of view, a difficult spot in their life, and, and they're having problems. And so we can't sit on our pedestal and act like we're all pious, like we would never make a wrong decision like that. We can't do that. We've, decisions that don't honor the Lord, we would never do that. We've got to try to understand these people. Like Galatians 6.1 says, consider yourself lest you're also tempted, right? So we need to do that first of all. None of us here are above a behavior that's questionable, by the way. None of us here are. So let's cut David a little slack, first of all, in the midst of very difficult circumstances. However, <laughs> having said that, after evaluating the situation he's in, I don't believe David did the right thing by going to Gath in the land of the Philistines. I don't think he made a right decision here. I think he gave in unbelief. I think Satan was shooting his fiery darts into the heart of David, and David didn't put up the shield of faith to protect himself. I don't think that happened at all. Now, why do I say this? Look at verse 1. David says, now I will perish. I'm going to perish one day at the hand of Saul. The best, here's a plan. Here's the best plan I can come up with. Let's go to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul's going to quit searching for him. He wouldn't dare come there. And look at the end of that sentence in verse 1. I will escape from his hand. I'm going to escape from it. But hadn't the Lord allowed David to escape time and time again in the land of Israel, in the land of Judah? Hadn't the Lord protected David, preserved him, providentially protected him numerous times? How many times have we seen already in 1 Samuel, David's on the verge of being killed by Saul, and all of a sudden, God providentially protects him, spares his life again and again. And so David is not going to perish by the hand of Saul. He says, now I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. Uh, it's not what he said in the previous chapter. He's trusting the Lord to deliver him from all distress. But now he's going to perish by the hand of Saul. As the Lord lives, surely... By the way, back in 26.9, David had said, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. Same word used in 27.1. In other words, in chapter 26, David says, Saul will perish one day. The David is trusting in God. In chapter 27, he says, I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now, what a change took place there. Just all of a sudden, lacking faith. But the Lord had assured David many times that he's going to become king of Israel one day. So why would he perish by the hand of Saul? This is unbelief. David's, David thought that many times he was assured of the fact that he would become king. Look, at, look with me at this uh, little, uh, as we go through some verses here. Look at chapter 23, verse 17. 23:16, rather, Jonathan assures David that he's going to be king one day. Look at chapter 23, verse 16. He says there, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Then he said to him, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you and you will be king over Israel. And I will be next to you and Saul, my father, knows this also. Jonathan says to David, you're going to be king, David. Now look at chapter 24, verse 20. Guess who, who assures him this time he's going to be king? Saul, the king. 24.20, Saul says to David, Now behold, I know that you will surely be what? You're going to be king. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand, he says. And then in chapter 25, look what Abigail says to him. Abigail in verse 28. 
she says, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Same idea in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you in all of your days. Verse 29, should anyone rise up to pursue you, David, and to seek your life? Then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord, <clears throat> according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and appoints you ruler over Israel. You're not going to feel guilty about it, she goes on to say. She says you're going to be ruler over Israel. And then look at chapter 26, verse 25. Saul again. Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son. You, David, you will both accomplish much and surely prevail. Again, Saul reassures him, even though Saul's trying to kill him. So the Lord preserved David in many ways, from, from death threats, helps him to escape in many ways. The evidence of God's providential working in David's life is absolutely overwhelming. We've seen it again and again in the chapters we've looked at. But now, now, David is convinced that he's got to leave the country. I've got to get out of Israel. I'm going to die. Saul's going to kill me. I can't take this anymore. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And so he's convinced that he's got to do that. His mind's been influenced by the, the circumstances. He's allowed the circumstances to overtake his, his trust in God. And I think he's making a mistake. Now, back in chapter 22, if you remember this, David had gone to Moab out of the country, and he had taken his parents, and he was trying to care for his parents, which was a good thing. But he took his parents to the king of Moab, and he says, hey, you know, can you take care of my parents for a while? And essentially is what he did. And he got a message from the prophet Gad while he was in Moab in another country in the stronghold. And the message was this, chapter 22, verse 5, he says, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. David, go back to Judah, go back home where you belong. You don't belong here in Moab, you're out of the country, go back to Israel. That's where you're going to be king one day. And I don't believe the Lord wanted him to leave Israel again to go to pagan Philistia. I don't think that was God's plan in order to find refuge of all things. When the Lord is his refuge, right? And so here he is in 20, chapter 27, verse 1. He's trying to reason it all out. He's trying to, to think what he can do. He's looking at the, at the best he can do under the circumstances. And yes, it's true, the Lord expects us to use our minds and think through things, but he expects us also to wait upon him, right? He wants us to wait upon him for direction. I don't see David doing that here. <clears throat> I didn't say anything about David waiting on God. I see a David under pressure right here. Succumbing to the pressure. I see a David who forgets the promises and assurances of God in many, many ways. Samuel anointed him to be the king. He seems to have forgotten all that. Here's a David who thinks he's got to come up with a scheme of his own making and try to work it out according to his purposes and will, not God's. Even though the Lord always managed to, manages to keep David alive and, and makes him escape from Saul. David keeps saying, I'm not going to lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed, but God will not let, let Saul lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed David either. That works both ways. And David has forgotten all these things. And I think this is simply doubt or unbelief on the part of David. Unbelief on the part of David. There's the David who trusted in the Lord's providence in chapter 26, and now the David who lacks trust in the Lord's providence in chapter 27. Look at verse 2 of chapter 27. It says, David arose and he crossed over. He and his 600 men who were with him, Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. Now, the king of Gath in chapter 21 is called Achish. And he's also called Achish here with the added phrase, the son of Maok. The question is, is this the same guy? 
the same guy that David was feigning madness in front of in chapter 21, and now he's back in the country again? That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Could be the same guy, but Achish could also be a title, by the way, and not a name. Could be a title for the kings of the Philistines, just like Pharaoh was a title of the, of the kings of the Egyptians. And it's this added son of Maok may, may tell us that he's a different king. I think, I think he might be a different king, but I'm not totally sure. Regardless of that, it says David and his men crossed over. They crossed over into the land of Philistia. And this is one of those lines you just don't cross. David crossed the line not only geographically, but one that, where he quit trusting in the providence of God. This shows he's lacking trust in the providential hand of God. Now, what do we learn here from this? Well, we learn again, as we learned already in chapter 21, that David, the man after God's own heart, the man that loved God, is going to serve God, that God chose to serve him, this man has feet of clay just like we do. Even the best and holiest of men are, are, you know, they're, they, they are subject to doubt. They're subject to discouragement, to defeat, to depression, uh, anxiety, all these things, even unbelief. So we learn here we'd better watch our step lest we too fall into the same trap David fell into. We don't trust in the providential leading of God. Now, as you read through the chapter, at first David's plan appears to work. Looks pretty good at first. Saul stops searching for him. What's what he wanted to have happen. Uh, David and his men even set up residence in Gath for a while, the city of Gath. Uh, think about this for a minute. It's just hard for me to fathom that David actually lived in the city that was the hometown of Goliath. This is where Goliath is from. And now all of a sudden David's living here. <laughs> this is so crazy to me. But this is how, this is how we, it's mind-boggling. This is how we do. And so eventually David got tired of living there. He was under the surveillance of the king, and he wanted to get out of Gath. Let's go to the country somewhere. Hey, can you give us a place to live? We've got all these people we've got to take care of. And he'd worked out some deal with, with the king of Gath, obviously. And, and so they go to a place called Ziklag, which is out of the way, out in the country. And uh, by the way, the, even the fact that they're living in Ziklag shows that this, is, this shows Israel's disobedience because in Joshua, Ziklag should have been captured already by Israel and settled in by them. Not, now they're in the land, of, they belong to the land of the Philistines. Even that is a disobedient thing. But... David lived there for 16 months, it says in verse 7. 16 months. Can you imagine living your, your, your greatest enemy, the greatest enemy of Israel, you'll live in, the, in living in their land for 16 months. How would you like to live in Iran for 16 months? Would you like to settle down in Iran for about 16 months? How would that be for you? That's how this is. It doesn't make any sense at all. Now, what did he do while living there? Well, he knew he had to endear himself. David's very shrewd again. Had to endear himself to the king of Gath somehow. How David pulled this off is even amazing, first of all. Here's what he does. Look at verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the Jeremelites and against the Negev of the Kenites, David did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, otherwise they will tell about us, saying, so has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has surely made himself odious among the people of Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. And so what David does is, he, by the way, the Negev is the southern country of uh, part of Judah. It's out in the desert. 
And what, what David does is he, um, he goes and fights against these people, Amalekites, Geshurites, Gerzites, which are basically enemies of Israel. They're living on the fringes of the territory of Judah down there in the south. He goes and fights against there. They're the enemies of Israel, not his own people. And uh, you remember the Amalekites, for example? Saul was told in, in 1 Samuel 15, wipe out the Amalekites, and Saul spared the king alive and the best of the animals. David goes after these guys down there and, and exterminates them, basically. Um, and he's attacking these people. But Achish doesn't know that. See, David's deceiving Achish. David is leading Achish to believe he's attacking his own people in, in Judah. But in reality, he's attacking the enemies of Judah. And so ferociously was he attacking them, he killed everybody and left none alive. That's how David did it. He would bring back some of the spoils to the king of Gath and say, here's some spoils for you, king. So he's, getting this, he's establishing a trust with the king of Gath by doing all this stuff. And the king would say, where'd you make a raid today, David? Oh, I was down in the Negev. In other words, the king thinks, oh, he's down in Judah, killing the Judahites. He's killing the Israelites down there. That's what David wanted him to believe. He was deceiving him. Whereas David was really killing the enemies that are in that general area as well. So David deceived Achish on purpose. He, this is totally deceptive. And Achish fell for it. He believed David. Look at verse 12. So Achish believed David, saying he surely made himself odious among the people of Israel. They're not going to take him back now. Uh, therefore, he will become my servant forever. By the way, that word odious is used elsewhere in the Old Testament of dead, the smell of dead fish or dead frogs. You ever smell a dead fish or a frog has been dead for a long time? It's nasty, isn't it? That's what he says about David. Man, these, David's going to stink in the nostrils of the Israelites. He's really, he's really betrayed the Israelites. That's how Achish thought of David. And so he says, he'll become my servant forever. David's a man. He, he knew the talents of David. He knew what a warrior he was. He knew he could, if, he, if I could get this guy to fight for me, this is going to be awesome. And since he's making Israel's over, enemies over in Israel, then it's going to be a great thing. And so he says, he's going to be my servant forever. In other words, a lifelong slave is what he said. He'll be my lifelong slave, which never becoming free of the master is what that word means. That's how Achish came to view David. Now, some time elapses. And the Philistines gather to do what Philistines do best. And what is that? Plan to go to war against Israel, the greatest enemy, right? Look at chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Now, it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you, know, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, they, they prepare to go to war against Israel. The Philistines do. And Achish calls David and, Look, David, I need to talk to you. He says, You understand that when we go to war against Israel, you're going to go with us, right? You guys are going to fight against Israel. You understand that, right? David says, very well. We'll do what we got to do. And by the way, David uses the same word for servant that Achish should use for him. I'm your lifelong slave. Let's do this thing. Isn't it ironic that this is happening? And Achish says of all things, and by the way, you're going to be my bodyguard for life, my personal bodyguard. In other words, literally, the keeper of my head. Keeper of my head is what the literal translation is. In other words, he says this, David, make sure you keep my head on my shoulders. Protect me when we go to battle against your own people, Israelites. You're going to be my personal bodyguard to protect me when we fight. How ironic. The man who cut off the head of Goliath, of Gath, is now going to protect the head of the king of Gath in battle against the Israelites. You talk about David getting himself into a real pickle here, right? 
All because he crossed over into the land of the Philistines. I think it was Sir Walter Scott that originally said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That's exactly right. We start deceiving people. We get into a big mess, don't we? And David pulled off maybe the greatest deception of all time here. This is absolutely phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Imagine the future king of Israel fighting against the people of Israel. That's what is being set up at this point right now. You know, as you read this chapter, on, on chapter 28, you, you look at this and you, and, you, and you notice there's something missing in this whole section here, chapter 27, basically, and, and into 28. There's something missing here in all this. What is missing here? There's no mention of God here. Not the first mention. This chapter says nothing about the Lord at all. There's no mention of prayer being offered to God. Uh, none of David's men are warning him, don't go to the Philistia, David, that's out of, that's insane. Don't do that. In fact, by the way, after Gad told David to go back to Judah, remember I said that earlier in chapter 23? Uh, chapter 22, rather, he said, go back to Judah, David, get out of Moab, get out of the foreign country, go back to the land of Israel. The next chapter says in chapter 23, verse 3, David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. This is after the Lord said, go back to Judah. The men of David said, we're afraid here in Judah. Now, but the Lord wanted them in Judah, right? The Lord wanted them in Judah. And David's receiving no godly counsel from anybody. His men aren't going to counsel him in a godly way. They don't, I don't even know where these guys stand. They, remember those guys when they first came, they were discontented and in debt and discouraged and all that, it says in a previous chapter? I don't know if it was possible for David to get in contact with the prophet Gad or not, but if it was, he didn't try to do that. He didn't say anything about that at all. David had a network, network of spies, by the way, according to chapter 26, verse 4. He, he was able to contact people, but he didn't, do, he didn't contact Gad. Jonathan once went, in, went to him in the desert. How did he find him down there? Somehow David alerted him to where he was. And so David could have done these things. By the way, do you know why Gad came in chapter 22 to David and said, go back to the land of Judah? Do you know why that happened? It's because in chapter 22 it says David was waiting on the Lord. Listen to what he told the king of Moab in chapter 22, verse 3. He says, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. He had lied to Elimelech. He had gone to Gath and acted like a fool in front of the king of Gath, pretending to be insane. He realizes his error. He gets back into, into chapter 22 and it says, Wait a minute. I'm going to wait on God. This is all crazy. And I'm going to see what God's going to do for me. So he's waiting on God, and he got the answer from Gad, and his, Gad says, go back to Judah. But he doesn't do that here in chapter 27. He's not waiting on God here. He's not saying, I'm going to wait until I know what God will do for me. Nor did he inquire of God like he did in chapter 23. In chapter 23, he inquired of God many times. What should I do, Lord? What should I do, Lord? What should I do, Lord? He's not doing that here in chapter 27. He's not doing it here at all. So he's not seeking the Lord's guidance at all. I can't see a whole lot of good coming out of this time in Gath other than maybe some enemies of Israel being killed. I don't see a whole lot of good coming out of this at all. And even that was for the wrong motive, by the way. It wasn't to glorify God. He was trying to keep his deception alive, get rid of all the evidence, kill everybody. So the king of Gath doesn't know what's going on here. And now he's expected to fight against his own nation, of all things. How crazy is this? This is what happens when we lack trust in the providence of God. This is where we get ourselves when we're not trusting God. We get ourselves into a mess, and that's what David's in right now. Let me ask you a question. How did all this come about? How did all this come about? Why did David decide to go to Philistine territory, to the greatest enemy 
of Israel at this time in history. How, why did this happen even? Well, I think verse 1 holds the answer. Look back at verse 1 again. Very important words. It says, Then David said to himself, Stop. He said to himself, Literally, he said in his heart, is what it says. He said to himself, David said in his heart, David is not having a conversation with his men at this point. He's talking, but not conversing with his men. He's not talking to one of his wives. He's not talking to the Lord at this point. Uh, he's not talking to anybody but, but himself. He's talking to himself here in this chapter, in verse 1. He's speaking within the confines of his own heart. He's conversing with himself. It's a private conversation between David and himself. That's what he's saying. Nobody else can hear this. By the way, all of us do this. Everybody here does this. Basically, we talk to ourselves, don't we? We think about things, and we talk to ourselves, and we spend more time talking about to ourselves than we do with other people. The question is, what are you thinking about? What are you saying to yourself during this time? Listen to what David says to himself. Look at it, verse 1. Here's what he says to himself in his heart. There is nothing better for me to do than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul will then despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. Did David face the very real threat of Saul trying to kill him? Yes, he did. But David's problem was he did not counsel his own heart to follow the things to follow the word of God. That was his problem. He didn't follow his he didn't counsel his own heart to trust in the Lord. He counseled his heart to do just the opposite. By the way, it's extremely important how you how you talk to yourself, how you think, and how you talk to yourself about your circumstances that you're in presently. It's very I know this from experience, by the way, <laughs> unfortunately. If you resort to self-pity, guess what? You're counseling yourself, your heart, in the wrong direction. You're counseling yourself to pity yourself. If, you, if in your heart you're complaining about your circumstances and there's a settled discontentment in your heart, you're counseling yourself away from the Lord instead of toward Him. If, if your job in life, your, your lot in life, it starts wearing you down, you know, this is what happens. Your, your job starts wearing you down, right? Your life circumstances. You get tired of it after a while. You get weary of it. Uh, in your heart and mind, you're no longer meditating on the truth of the scriptures. You're, by the way, no one can accuse you of not meditating. You are meditating, but not on the scriptures. You're thinking about things like uh, things that, that discouraging thoughts. You're meditating on discouragement and bitterness and depression and defeat and all these things. These are not God-honoring thoughts. So it's what we do. And we start dwelling on these kind of thoughts, and, and we're, we're taking ourselves away from God. We're not counseling our hearts, or as some have said, we're not preaching to our hearts. As Mike says, we're not preaching the gospel to our hearts. We're thinking about things that are just anti-biblical. I, I, I know the Bible says walk by faith, not by sight, right? We know that, right? We know the Bible says trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. We know what it says, but we say to ourselves, things don't seem to be working out for me right now. My life is kind of a mess. There's problems in my life. I don't get it. And so maybe I should try another direction. Maybe I should try another option. And so we don't consult the Lord, and we don't look into his word, and we don't seek the counsel of, of godly friends, and we do listen to the counsel of ungodly friends, and, and all these type things. And by the way, I wondered if when David's men said, we fear being here in Judah, if they kept talking about that. And I wonder if David listened to, to that reasoning, and he thought to himself, yeah, it's pretty scary here. This is pretty crazy, and, and started taking their advice. You start on this, this path and it becomes a habit in your life. And you start dwelling on these kind of thoughts that don't please God at all. Then it becomes ingrained in your conscience. Really, it's just a, a faithless, godless pattern of thinking, isn't it? 
And that's what David had fallen into. And eventually you start talking to yourself and talking to other people about these things. And you get them discouraged. And the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's going to come out. What's in your heart is going to come out. And you're going to start telling others about this. And then you begin to make decisions that reflect the heart attitude of your heart, that you're going away from God and you stop trusting the Lord. And now what are you doing? Relying on your own logic and your own wisdom. David said, this is the best thing I can come up with. He's not seeking God here. You're not looking to the Lord at this particular time in your life, and it could just be at a particular time in your life you're doing this. You're trying to figure it out yourself, and that's what David was doing here. Maybe right now you're going through a trial in your life, some difficulty in your life, and this is what you're doing. No one else understands what you're going through, but it's very trying to you. You know that for sure. So you quit trusting the Lord. That's a dangerous place to be. You're not trusting the providence of God. You're going to be led astray with that mindset. That's why we must learn to counsel our heart according to the word of God. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 6, a good servant of Jesus Christ is one who is nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine. You've got to nourish yourself on the words of faith or you're going to start doing this. It all starts in the heart. It all starts in the heart. What are you saying to yourself that no one else can hear? What are you saying to yourself? Is it thoughts that lead you to trust in God's providence or, tr- or thoughts that lead you to lack trust in his providence? What does the, the fool say in his heart? There is no God. What a foolish thing to say, right? But he says it in his heart first. That's where you begin to tr- distrust the Lord in your heart. By the way, an atheist becomes an atheist in his heart long before he becomes one out in public, and he's on 7th Avenue down there proclaiming atheism. That's where he became an atheist in his heart. And we begin to tr- distrust the Lord in our hearts first. Other times, times we're trusting God's providence, and other times we're not. And why are we doing this? We're not trusting our, we're not nourishing our souls on the words of faith. We're not looking to God. We're not inquiring of God. We're not asking God what to do. Instead, we're saying, what, what can I do? How can I figure this out? That's what David was doing. How can I figure this situation out? What would David do in this situation is what David asked himself. Instead of looking to God. He let the circumstances overwhelm the promises and assurances of God, that God had given him again and again in his word. Let me ask you a question. Is this the path you're traveling on tonight? Is this where you are tonight? Are you going through a trial tonight that's having a draining effect upon you? It's taking you down? It's starting to wear you down? Are you trying to figure it out yourself? Are you trying to come up with options on your own? Well, James 1.5 tells us what to do when we're, in this, when we're in a trial. You know what we do when we're in a trial? James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom... In the trial, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. Ask God for wisdom as to what to do. Don't look to yourself. Don't talk to your heart in your heart and look for an answer in your heart. Look to God and for his wisdom, and he'll give it to you. He says generously. Ask him for his wisdom. You don't have to rely on your own wits. You don't have to rely on your own brain. You need to wait upon the Lord. You say, what do I do in my perplexing trial? I don't know what to do. Well, I don't know what to do either. You know what you do? You ask God for wisdom as to what to do. And he grants you wisdom. David didn't do that. You know, we need to do what the psalmist did in Psalm 42 and 43. You know what it says there? The psalmist talked to himself. You know that? He talked to himself, and he said this, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. He counsels his own soul to hope in God, even though he's disturbed and depressed and discouraged. For I shall yet again praise him for the help of his presence. If we want to consistently trust in the providence of God in our life, this is what we have to do. To counsel our own hearts. We've got to cast aside thoughts that are contrary to God's word. They're going to come in your mind. 
got to cast aside the lies of Satan. You've got to cast aside the worldly advice. And you've got to learn, all of us here have to learn to counsel our hearts with the word of truth, right? With the truth of how faithful God is. With the truth of how dependable God is. That's what we need to do. That's what we've got to do tonight, and that's what we've got to do this week. When you talk to yourself this week, and you're going to do it, please remember that. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this word tonight, for your scripture. We just pray we learn from it tonight. We pray that we would learn to trust you. We know that life gets difficult for all of us here. Things happen. We're perplexed. We're puzzled about many things in life. But we, 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 we just need to trust in you, and we pray we would do that tonight. We pray we do it this week. We pray you give us the grace to do it and the wisdom to do it, to seek your wisdom. Please, Lord, give us all here wisdom in our different situations tonight to know what to do going forward. Help us to trust you above all things. Put our faith and trust in you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.